0: words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength, our Redeemer. Amen. Be seated. Several years ago I went to a training session on prayer ministry and the trainer had us break into pairs And to pray for one another, the trick was you you couldn't know who that person was, or you, you didn't know who that person was. It was supposed to be a stranger that you pray with, and you couldn't really find out anything about them. You just got their name and where they were from, and then you were to pray for them for a minute, and then they were to pray for you for a minute. And so we just kind of had these generic prayers for one another. We asked God to bless them and went as far basically as we could with that little information And then he said, okay, now I want you to pray for that same person, but spend about a minute or so getting to know them a little bit. Ask, what are you afraid of? Uh, What are you thankful for? Who are you concerned about in your life? Share that and then pray for one another. And so when we did that, the prayers were much richer. We could empathize with what they were going through Our prayers were very informed, and it was, again, a rich time of prayer. I still remember that person praying for me and some of the things that I was going through at that time. I share that with you because we have been called, our bishops, our archbishop has called us to pray for Christians who are being persecuted around the world. And one thing I want to do today, this is going to be a little bit different of a sermon, it's a little bit different of a a service. Um, I want to inform you so that your prayers can be informed about what's going on in places like Iraq, Syria, and Nigeria. And I'm saying this not as an expert, but somebody who spent a week or so just kind of uh, looking at some websites and, and people who have the credentials to speak authoritatively on what's happening and, and calling information from them. So I'm going to share that with you here in about ten minutes. But before we do that, I want to go back to the Gospel reading because this is a very fitting um, text when it comes to thinking about persecution. Actually, I think you, maybe you picked up. That's a theme of all the readings today is this theme of persecution. Jeremiah was persecuted as a prophet. In Revelation, we have a picture of those who've come through martyrdom and the promise of God that he's going to wipe away the tears from their eye, that the suffering is going to be more than made up for. And uh, we are wearing red today for the blood of the martyrs responding again to this call that the bishops have put out for us to pray for persecuted church. But in our gospel reading, Jesus shares with us, with his disciples and with us, what it costs to follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, then you must take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, in the first century, when somebody took up the cross, everybody knew what that meant. It meant that this person was going to die. Certainly, a horrific, horrible, gruesome, um, humiliating type of death. Uh, nobody really wanted to associate with the cross or even mention the cross. It was such a scandal um, of shame and, uh, and death. And so, uh, Jesus is using this this shocking image to get this point across and maybe today it would be comparable to saying something like if you want to follow me take up your electric chair or take up the sword that is going to slay you just that's the the kind of visceral image that Jesus is going for and the point is that you must be willing he's saying to these disciples you have to be willing to give up your life for me because, as he says just prior to this, I am going to give up my life for you and for the rest of the world. I am going to the cross, and so the student is not above his master. And people are opposing me, and if you follow me, this could happen to you. He's not wanting to stir up like a cult of martyrdom. Okay, let's, let's be clear about that. There are religious groups, these Islamic jihadists, they have a cult of martyrdom. People willingly, and they want to become martyrs for the cause um, so that they can inherit paradise. But Jesus isn't doing that. He's just saying, I want you to be clear about what you're getting into. I'm getting ready to go to the cross. This is my fate, and this could be your fate too. Are you willing to give up your life to follow me? And, of course, we know that many of the disciples did end up giving their life um, as martyrs. So Jesus is explaining what could happen to them. And this is what our brothers and sisters in these regions that we're going to talk about here in a minute are experiencing. They're living this out. They're suffering for the cause of Christ. Um, Many people in Jesus' day opposed Him and hated Him. Um, And Jesus said in Matthew 10.22 to His disciples, You will be hated by everyone because of Me. And then in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So expect the same kind of treatment. Now, why did people oppose Jesus in his day? Well, it's for many of the same reasons they oppose Jesus in Christians today. Uh, You might remember the scene in John chapter 6, where Jesus is debating with the religious leaders, and then he makes this shocking uh, statement, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I pre-existed Abraham. Before Abraham existed, I existed. And he's claiming something that only God can claim, this pre-existent nature. And then he uses that term, I am, which was what God said to Moses in the desert when Moses approached the burning bush and he said, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. So this is the divine term for God, the divine term for God, a holy term. And Jesus is applying it to himself. So the religious leaders knew what Jesus was claiming to be divine, to be one with God, the same God that revealed himself to Abraham and to Moses. And they pick up stones. They hate him. They oppose him to kill him because they couldn't take that claim. And even today, there are people who say it's fine if you want to think about Jesus as a moral teacher or a great example of how to live your life. But you cannot say that he is the Son of God, that he is fully divine, and that he is the only way to God. They oppose the Jesus of the Bible. And uh, that happens in our culture, and it's certainly happening in the Middle East with these Islamic jihadists. They oppose the Jesus of the New Testament. You'll hear sometimes Islam has Jesus in their Koran. But it really is a different Jesus. I don't have time to go into all the details. It's not the same Jesus. And they oppose those who believe in Jesus as revealed in our scripture in the New Testament and by those who knew him. So that's one reason why people oppose Jesus. Many are opposed to his morals today, uh, especially in the area of sexual morality. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has been asked about divorce and he affirms that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that this is rooted in God's design at creation. And so Jesus implies here that anything outside the bonds of that kind of marriage is against God's design. It's rebelling against God's design. And so Christians, who we have to be sensitive to those who are struggling with uh, sexual desires that are outside of that framework, but we also have to be sensitive clear that this is the biblical design for sexual relationship and expression and marriage. And when a Christian says that today in our culture, many people will oppose them. And there are Christians being silenced today. If I had time, I could talk to you about cases in universities where groups that will not adhere to a campus diversity policy, which is supposed to be all inclusive when it comes to the matter of sexuality. These Christian groups are now being told, you don't have a place here. Uh, These are recent things that are happening. So, people oppose Jesus. They oppose um, His followers for these sorts of reasons. And Jesus is just saying, be aware that if you follow Me, the, the heat will be on you in some cases. The persecuted Christians now, today, instead of denying Jesus, are dying for Jesus. And and instead of surrendering, they are suffering for the cause of Christ. And I don't know about you. Have you followed some of these reports about what's happening? But the, the witness of these Christians challenges me. Comfortable, middle class American Christian culture. What they're going through is a challenge to us. Um... It raises the question, what am I willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ? What am I willing to give up? What does it mean to me in this culture to take up my cross and follow him? Certainly it means daily I have to die to sin and selfishness. That's part of what it means to take up the cross every day, to die to self, to die to die to the sinful nature. But uh, there are other things to consider. Am I willing to be ostracized? Am I willing that people uh, w- think that I'm a strange or maybe a fanatic if, if I share my faith with them? Willing to willing to suffer in that way? Am I willing to live more simply and sacrificially so that I can give more uh, to the cause of Jesus Christ? Do I always have to have the latest and the greatest, the biggest and the best? Do I have to keep up with the Joneses Or can I make some sacrifices to give more money to the cause of Jesus Christ? So there's a cost to following Jesus. And that's what Jesus is getting in a cross here. But there's also a gain. There's a great reward that he talks about. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the paradox. You give your life to Christ. The irony is that we think we have to grasp the things of this world and our life so tightly. And Jesus is saying, if you just let go of that and trust me, I will give you the life that you've been seeking. You will know abundant life. You will know peace now and forever. And that's the reward. That's what Jesus promised. I have come to give them life and life more abundantly. Jesus asks us to, to kind of think things out for a minute here. He says, question one. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? If you have everything the world has to offer, what does it benefit you if in the end you die and you're separated from God forever? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Nothing. Nothing. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Well, the answer should be everything. To have eternal life with God is worth everything. And so the the point is that at the end of life or at the day of judgment, what matters most for you and for me is our relationship with God and what we've done for Jesus Christ. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jesus teaches here that He is the Son of Man who's going to come again at the end of time to judge the living And the dead, and he will reward people based on what they've done. We're saved by grace as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, but then our works are evidence of our faith in him. So we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but what we do demonstrates the truth and the reality of our faith. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we trust in Jesus? Do we trust what he is teaching here? Jesus is saying this to those who have to be willing, the first century disciples, to give up everything for His sake. He's saying that it's going to be worth the price. You will receive a reward if you remain faithful to Me. In Matthew 5, 11, 12, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. He's not saying go out into the world and stir up controversy, and be a big jerk so people will insult you and persecute you. But he's saying, if you are following me, pursuing righteousness, loyal to me, and people falsely accuse you, and you suffer for my sake, great is your reward, he says, in heaven. And so this is what we're called to believe. We're called to be a pilgrim people, to realize that this world is not our permanent home. We're to use what God has given us for His glory and for the sake of the kingdom. I'm going to close with this this quote before we get into the information piece here in a minute. But this is from a writer named Tom Taylor. Just listen carefully here. He's, He's trying to present sort of a logical argument for giving your life fully to Jesus Christ. He says this, Despite the cost of Christian discipleship, consider this. Every philosophy or theology of life that you will follow costs you exactly one lifetime of effort. We all pay the same price. One lifetime, every philosophy or theology of life. But not every way of life holds out the promise of fulfillment and eternal life that the resurrection of Jesus Christ does. You get what he's saying here? We all only have one life. We're going to spend it on some philosophy and there's only one philosophy of life that has the security that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of eternal life. Our brothers and sisters who are suffering in places like Iraq and Syria and Nigeria are a witness to this for us here in the West. They're willing to risk their lives for Jesus Christ because they believe His promises. So I want to just share with you what's going on. Again, I don't claim to be an expert. Uh, I've delved into this for about a week and kind of had to take a break for it because it's just frankly depressing and difficult sometimes to be exposed to it all the time, and you can just imagine what the people who are experiencing are going through. But our bishop, the Bishop of PerU usa or presiding bishop, um, issued a newsletter a couple of weeks ago, actually the 824, and he said this, he said, there's a genocide occurring. He uses the G word here, genocide. Christians in Iraq, Syria, Nigeria, and beyond are being expelled if they've not ar- already been bu- brutally murdered. And the silence from the West in the face of the slaughter is deafening. I think it's gotten a little better in the last week or so. I think some people are starting to speak up. Here's what happened in Iraq, in, a, in Mosul in June. ISIS, you know, we know about this terrible group. Uh, the Islamic State took over Mosul in June. There were uh, 3,500 Christians. Only 25 people stayed. And I'm sure you've heard this. They're given the choice, right? Leave. Convert or die, and in some cases, you can submit to um, to Islam to and and pay the tax. But it's a it's a a very expensive tax that they would have to pay as non-Muslims to stay under Islamic Sharia law. That's what they're trying to do to establish a caliphate in this region and impose Sharia law on everybody. So they took over Mosul in June. Then they took over the Christian town. This was known as the Christian town. Of Karakush, I don't know, I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but there was 50,000 people living in that town in mid-August, so very recently, again, they're given the choice. Now, the reports that I read, they didn't even give them a choice to pay the the tax. They just said, either get out of here, convert, or you're going to die. 100,000 Christians have been driven from northern Iraq, the Nineveh plain, they call it. So this huge wave of refugees coming out of northern Iraq We think of Iraq as it is, obviously, predominantly uh, Muslim, but in the 1980s, there was almost 10% of the population was Christian. There's an ancient Christian community there. It's being eradicated. They're blowing up churches. They're destroying ancient manuscripts. They destroyed the tomb of Jonah in Nineveh. They are just trying to wipe out the Christian presence in history in this area of the world. All right, let's go to the next slide. This is what Nina Shea, he's, uh, again, an expert in this area. She's written books on persecution. She's advised the Pope on persecution. So she knows what she's talking about. Center for Religious Freedom. She's talking here about what happened in Mosul. They were stripped of all their possessions. The IS has stamped their houses or with Nazarene, meaning Christian. Then stamped again, saying property of the Islamic State. Does this ring a bell historically? The stamping of property? Yeah, this is, this is coming out of the same totalitarian evil that we saw during the Nazi regime, right? Their cars are taken, even their wedding rings, and sometimes with their fingers attached, the rings wouldn't come off. This, These are some images of just what's happened as a result, the images of the refugee crisis. And some of you have seen more gruesome images than this, I'm sure. What's going on there is horrific. There's a uh, Anglican priest there, a vicar named uh, Andrew White in Baghdad. Do you know about him? The vicar of Baghdad. You can go online learn about him. He has a Facebook account. He's been chronicling. He's there, I think, still in Baghdad, staying, chronicling what's happening. What got me last week was he, uh, he's just showing images, and some of them are, are just too gruesome to talk about, but um, of a family that had been, a Christian family that had been gunned down having a Bible study in their home. This is a family reading their Bible. He showed the picture of these little kids laying next to their Bibles in the living room been shot because they were... And what got me was I had just done that with my family the night before. So this is what Christians have been facing. In Nigeria, um, This another Islamic jihadist group, Boko Haram, has implemented Sharia law in 12 states since 2011. There's some statistics about the churches that have been attacked. Uh, Since uh, 2014, uh, over 4,000 people have died. These deaths have been attributed to Boko Haram. You know what happened in uh, April of this year. These girls, mainly Christian, okay, this was a targeted attack, mainly a Christian community were at this school uh, in the village of Shabuk, and now they're being many of them being, being sold into slavery. Here's a pastor from Nigeria, uh, of a, a, a net, president of a network of churches, and he says this, Samuel Dolly, this is from World Watch Monitor, a very good source of information on persecution. Dozens of our churches have been raised down, many pastors killed while others have fled along with their members. If the situation does not stop, there's real danger of eliminating churches in this region, and that's the goal. That's the goal of ISIS. We want the church worldwide to recognize that this is not just our problem; it is a problem of the whole body of Christ. You know the Pauline image of the body of Christ, and we can apply this locally, but I think globally, when one member of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers. Since May of 2013, over 300,000 Christians have had, or 300,000 people have been forced to flee. It's not just Christians; Christians are being targeted, but other Muslims who don't agree with this and other religious minorities. Um, Just some general statistics here about persecution. This is from Open Doors USA, another great organization. According to the U.S. State Department, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in the person of Jesus Christ. 60 countries right now. I think North Korea is at the top in terms of the persecution and restrictions. This is an astounding statistic, and it's actually, I didn't delve into this too deeply, but I know there's some controversy surrounding this. Some people feel this is an overestimation, but this is coming from a very reputable source. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which publishes statistics on religious affiliation, Christian affiliation, every year. They're known by scholars to be just a top-notch group. And what they said is this, in the worldchristiandatabase.org, each year approximately 100,000 believers in Jesus Christ have lost their lives prematurely in the first 10 years of this century 100,000 each year is what they're claiming again that's debated but it does give you a sense of the scale when we think about persecution and martyrdom we think about the early church but we need to think about the present context as well we have martyrs today so our response is to pray we're going to do that in a minute collectively and Again, this is about informing your prayers, and of course we should be doing this throughout the week. We need to learn and, and more about what's happening, speak out in our sphere of influence, and do something I did this week. I've never done it before. I wrote my two state senators a letter and, and just said, you know what? As a Christian minister, this is what's happening. I think we should aggressively uh, push back on ISIS and support the Nigerian government to squash Boko Haram and, and gave them some some just specific things that i had read that i that i wanted to bring out give of course to the anglican relief fund or world vision or these organizations any you know about the good organizations that are out there that are that are helping uh, these refugees because they're leaving with absolutely nothing but the clothes on their back and then the final thing i want to say and this was something i had to preach to myself as i <laughs> did some of this research is we have to maintain hope in God's providence and plan in the midst of these persecutions. You know, you look at this and you wonder, where is God in the midst of it? And this is what we see in the Old Testament all the time when the people of God are suffering. They say, God, where are you? And um, what we see in the Bible is that God uses the suffering of his people in redemptive ways. You look at the book of Acts when they were persecuted, the early church in Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem because they were being persecuted. What happened when they left Jerusalem and they scattered to Judea and Samaria? Well, the church grew in those regions. God used that suffering redemptively. And He's done it time and time again in the history of the Christian faith. And I think He's going to do it again now. We don't know what that's going to look like, but our God is a God of hope and redemption. And He's going to use this in some way for His glory. There's a story, I'm going to close with this, of an African man named Joseph, a Messiah warrior who converted to Christianity. He became a Christian on the, one of the dusty roads of Africa. An evangelist met him and shared the gospel. He believed, he received Jesus Christ, his life was transformed. He said, I've got to go back to my village and tell my people this wonderful good news about a Savior dying for me and rising again. So he goes back to his village and he begins to share. And there was opposition against him. In fact, the women of the village and the men of the village attacked him, and the women uh, um, began to beat him with barbed wire. And they drug him out of the village and into the bush and left him for dead. He was able to recover after a couple of days. He managed to um, drag himself to a watering hole, so he recovered after a couple of days, and he went back into the village. And he thought as he was going, maybe I left something out. Maybe they didn't get it. This is the best news of the world. The same thing. He was beaten, barbed wire, drug into the bush, left for dead. And miraculously, once again, he got up and he knew this might be it, but he said, I have an obligation to tell my people the gospel of Jesus Christ. This time he didn't even get more than just beyond the edge of the village. They met him there. They beat him. But he noticed that time that as the women were beating him, they were weeping. And when he woke up, he woke up in his own bed. And these women who had beaten him were nursing him back to health. The whole village had come to Jesus Christ because they'd seen the witness of this man who's willing to give his life for Jesus Christ. And you know, God uses suffering redemptively. We need to speak out on behalf of our brothers and sisters who are suffering, but we also need to know that God is sovereign. He's in control. Even in our own life, the way we go through suffering is a witness to our non Christian friends and neighbors we can go through suffering in the hospital or the loss of a family member or even our own financial maybe struggles our friends see us go through this with hope then that's a great witness to the world in a minute we're going to have our prayer time and it's a different type of prayer time it's 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 uh, the prayers are provided for us from the anglican church in north america to focus on the persecuted church so that's why things are a little bit different this morning but i encourage you to maybe even use this take this bulletin home and 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 use this form in your own prayer time this week but let's uh, confess our faith using the words of